please stand for a reading of the word from Colossians 3, 12 through 15. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in the one body. The word of the Lord. Before we jump into the sermon today, um, I would like us to welcome uh, Ashley Crisp. I think she's already stepped back into the His Kids group, but let's, let's welcome her together. It's so good to have her. A really gift to our, our ministry. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 for the most part, but we're also going to kind of bounce around a bit in Colossians. So if you have your Bible or your phone app, you might want to pull that up now. Um, but I'm afraid that uh, this sermon might be a little disappointing because the answer is so simple and the question is so complicated. It's either it's going to be boring or it's going to be uninteresting. But I want us to think together today about the nature of unity and realize the answer is simple. But getting there is going to be a real challenge. And I'm, I'm very grateful uh, for the words of David Green leading us to the table uh, today. But I want us to begin by thinking of some questions together. Should the church be unified. And by church, I mean church universal, the body of Christ as it's realized across space and time. Should Highland be unified, our church, where we find ourselves today? I mean, after all, this is Jesus' prayer, one of the last things he asks the Father, that they might be one as you and I are one. How? How are we supposed to be one? I mean, unity is an utterly neutral position. Unity is neither good nor bad. It's neutral, or rather it could be good or bad, in the sense that Pilate and Herod were unified in their attempt to kill Jesus. And that was a bad thing. On the other hand, me and most of the rational world is unified uh, in our distaste for the Yankees. Just because you can afford to buy a World Series doesn't mean you should. I thought I'd get an Amen. That's all right. You've got some unrational folk here. It's not your fault. We live in a time or a place where saying things or not saying things like Black Lives Matter on Facebook can cost you real friends. Or choosing to wear a mask or refusing to wear a mask would draw lines down churches and families. I have family members that 
are in conflict with one another because of those two very topics. And we often confuse unity with uniformity, and uniformity is just kind of, hey, just get behind the leader. But the net effect of uniformity is that it pushes the marginal voices to extremes and, and, and tries to quiet dissent, or at least not give anyone else the microphone. It ignores others' experiences for the sake of appearance. It isn't unity, it's tyranny. And there can be little tyrannies all over the place. You've experienced tyrannies in your life, like the time when I was about between the ages of six and nine. Both my parents were school teachers, and so we would take these month-long van trips where we would drive all over the U.S. And looking back, that was a really amazing experience to get to take my family in a passenger van down to Florida, or we'd go up to Maine and then through Canada and come back down. It was an amazing experience. There were four kids in my family, two adults, but for some reason, we stopped at every Civil War battlefield on those trips. There was only one person that was interested in Civil War battlefields. You know what the rest of us saw? We just saw a kind of prairie grass and little monuments. There was no meaning there. Fields. That's all it was. If we had had a vote, I guarantee you, four to two, the answer would have been Disney World every single vacation. That's not how it turned out. We had a tyranny in our house. We had a tyranny... All of us were bound by it. It was Casa Bonita. Maybe you know a Casa Bonita. I grew up in Colorado and Denver, and Casa Bonita was this like Disneyland-ish tourist trap, and you only went there when somebody from out of town wanted to come. But inside uh, Casa Bonita, there were cliff divers. They, there was like this 70-foot waterfall inside, and, and they would dive off the cliff, and there was Black Bart's Cave that you could walk through, and there was traveling uh, mariachi bands that would play music, and you could lift up this little flag, and you'd get free sopapillas. That was the only redeeming part of Casa Bonita. <laughs> my eldest sister, she hated the smell of the chlorine that came from the pool. My next eldest sister hated the, how loud the mariachi bands when they walked by. My brother was scared of Black Bart's Cave because it had a dragon inside that was going to eat you. My mother hated the food. My father hated how expensive it was. But every time we had an out-of-town guest, we went to Casa Bonita. Because there can be little tyrannies all around. And then reality is just as complicated. And at some level, the conversation that's happening in our culture or not happening, trying to be suppressed, is a result of portions of perceived unity that are hearing voices on the margins that they had never been able to hear before or they haven't bothered listening to before. I have a friend that's working at a church in the, the South, and he followed a minister that had been there for 20 years, 25 years. And as soon as she showed up, it was a great church with a great, uh, great people, and they had, they'd had this wonderful time in ministry together, serving their community. But as soon as she showed up, all of these problems started happening. All these conflicts were arising, and he couldn't figure out what was going on until he talked to a, a mentor, and he said, look, what's been happening is all of those conversations have been oppressed for the last 20 years because the previous minister didn't want conflict. And now what you're bearing is the fruit of 20 years of conflict where it can finally be heard. It's not a problem. It's a gift. And I think this is what happens when we open our Bibles to the book of Colossians. 
the church in Colossae, if you read the next part of, of, of Colossians chapter 3, he talks about parents and children, about husbands and wives, about slave owners and slaves. And this is called the household code. And actually, household codes are really common in, in Grecan literature. You would find this in the first century all over the place, instructions about how to manage a household, how to, how to live together. Except the difference with what Paul is writing is it's not just concerned about the father and the slave owner and the husband. In almost all of the other literature that you read, it's husbands dominate your family because if you can't run your family, how are you supposed to run a city? Husbands, dominate your wives because they are lesser beings worthy of less respect. But instead, Paul says, love. Submit yourselves because it valued the well-being of women and children and slaves. Remember, Colossae is, is almost certainly the place where Paul has to write that letter to Philemon about his runaway slave Onesimus. And, and his instructions are, accept him back as a brother in Christ. Unity is simple until you really begin to try to love the people that you're around. And that's exactly what Paul is asking the Colossians church to do. And it's what it's asking us to do by proxy. Clothe yourselves in the virtues of God. I don't want to think about why this matters. Because if we don't consider the why, we're never going to get to the how. This is a church that gathers for worship. And we are a church that gathers for worship. It's what we do together. It's the most central defining characteristic in our action on which, around which all other actions are centered. James K. E. Smith, I love this. He says, God is both the audience and actor in worship, the subject and the object. Worship is how the people of God practice their reliance on their God. And by orienting our heart to God's heart, we submit ourselves to be shaped by God in Christ through the rhythms of worship. We learn to love who God loves, to live how Jesus lives, and to move with the cadence of the Spirit in a world longing for redemption. Another scholar says, worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reformed our desires, and rehabilitates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Jamie Smith, who I just mentioned, wrote a great book called You Are What You Love. And the title really sets up everything that he wants you to realize. You are what you love. Rene Descartes, the famous philosopher, he said, I think, therefore, I am which another way to say that is you are what you think. And this conversation may or may not have happened with my five-year-old. I won't tell you the truth one way or the other. I was talking to him, and it was clear that he was focused on something else. And so I said, Elliot, are you listening? And he says, my mind wasn't listening. And I said, Elliot, you are your mind. And he responded back, if I am my mind, then it would do what I want. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. Like I said, that story may or may not be true, but it's better if I tell it in the first person. You are 
what you love. And love in this, in this passage in Colossians is the highest virtue. It's the one that Paul mentions last. The word that Paul uses translated there as bind could also be used to describe a clasp or a brooch it's, which holds a cloak together. It's that piece right there in the middle. And these sorts of virtue lists are all over the place in Greek and Roman literature. But Christianity is unique and it's the only uh, group that Christian teaching that places love as the most important virtue. The answer is so simple. The answer is love. God's tra transformational love for us is experienced in worship, and our sacraments teaches us how to love each other. But there's a gap between what you know and what you do. You are what you love. You're also what you eat, which I know that it isn't wise for me to eat half a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts every day. But when that hot and ready sign is lit, what I do is seize the moment. I know that Chick-fil-A is not part of a daily, it's not a daily part of a healthy balanced diet. And I am grateful that it's closed on Sunday because at least there's one day a week that I don't have to fight temptation. You can't mock Chick-fil-A in a church. That's God's chicken. I'll repent. You, you are more than what you know. You are more than the thoughts in your mind. We are more than the sum total of the things we know. Smith would argue before, we are knowers, we are lovers. And all you have to do is hold a baby to remember that truth. We are driven by what we love. That which we desire becomes like a magnet drawing us to itself, or as St. Augustine says, love is like gravity. So make love the highest virtue. And we might experience unity as Jesus prayed. But I'm not convinced there's any other way we get to experience that. Paul goes on to say, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The, rule, the word rule there. Um, could also be translated as umpire. Let the peace of Christ umpire your hearts. And it's impossible for Paul not to imagine what's going on in his context in the first century, that, that Rome has dominated the ro known world, has conquered every land they can possibly conquer, and Israel is, is, is subject to that Roman peace, as it was called. And you could, you could argue that it wasn't very peaceful at all because on the fringe of the Roman Empire was constant war. The military was constantly moving around, putting out brush fires. But what happened in the middle of the empire was actually peaceful, that you could move on Roman roads with a, a fairly uh, high degree of certainty that you're just not going to get robbed. And that you'll be able to move from here to there successful, which helped trade and help all sorts of things happen. It's those Roman roads that help spread Christianity. That's what Paul uses to travel from place to place. It's the Roman peace that is ruling. It's creating the potential for cities, smaller countries. Although they're not subject to their own rule, They've got an umpire that's calling the shots to have fruitful lives. You could argue the same thing has happened in the 20th 
in the beginning of the 21st century with America. That for the last 70 years or so, there has been a Pax Americana. Now, there's been wars along the edge of the American sphere of influence. But for the most part, most of us don't worry about driving from here to Colorado. If we're worried that we might be attacked along the way. We don't all have to agree, but we do need to have the same ground rules. We do need to allow Christ to umpire, to ump our hearts, to call the shots. And when it's a difficult situation with a difficult pitch where somebody got hurt, we're going to have to trust that umpire speaking through the Spirit to rule for us. I think agreement is a myth. I think that was a noble idea, and the Church of Christ embraced it in a, in a, in a very serious way uh, two generations ago, but I, I don't think that's a reality. I think agreement is a myth. John Willis, on the second week I was here, he asked me this question, and it's it stuck in my brain. I haven't, I'll, it hasn't been able to get out of my brain. He asked me the question, how many churches are there in Abilene? And in my mind, I was thinking, okay, back when I was a student, I know about how many churches there were, but I, I know there's been some decline. I don't know how many churches have closed, and I, I, I'm not sure if I know the right answer, but this is John Willis. He's one of my heroes. I want to say something. And in the process of my thinking, John interrupts it, and he says, there's one. There's one church in Abilene. Thanks be to God. But... If Christ doesn't reign in our hearts, then we're going to become a bunch of little churches of just one. Another way to think about this is um, sociologists talk about the difference between gathered sets and bounded sets. And for me, growing up in Colorado, um, we, we would study Colorado history, and I think that history is about the same here in Texas. So you may have already experienced this as well. Uh, when Colorado was being settled, uh, first came in a bunch of cattle ranchers. And, and cattle like to graze in open land. And so they would uh, kind of go through and they, uh, land could be shared. There was enough for everyone. But after the cattle ranchers came sheep ranchers. And sheep graze differently. Instead of just kind of chewing the top of grass, they'll munch it straight down to the, the root and even pull the root out. And so sheep will go through and kind of decimate the grazing fields. But cattle will be fine. And so what happened was a bunch of cattle ranchers began to set up fences to keep the sheep ranchers out of that area. And it was the invention of bob wire, which was this cool technique of invention that would keep animals out of spaces. It was kind of this amazing thing. And what the sheep ranchers didn't like that because they didn't own very much land. They got their second. And so they would begin cutting fences. Lives were lost over fences that were cut in Colorado and southern Wyoming. A bounded set is a set that is, that is bounded. It has a fence around it. And if, if you have 100 cattle in a pen, you have to have a fence, otherwise you're going to lose them all. But a centered set doesn't need the barrier because cattle ranchers have known this for generations. If you have a big enough place, you don't need a fence. What you need is to control the water. And so they would drill three or four wells. 
And the cattle would naturally gravitate and live around those wells. It's a centered set. And so the way that we function, I think part of how we submit ourselves to one another in love and to put love on as our highest virtue is to realize that the church is not a bounded set, it's a centered set. We don't have to live by fences and rules as much as we have to live orbiting the same well. Christ is the thing we gather around. Paul is going to say in Colossians chapter 1, God has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, the Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, those things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Through him God was pleased to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven by making peace through the blood of his cross. We are a gathered set. And my belief is, and it sounds so simple, it's almost embarrassing to say it, but my belief is, as we are drawn by Jesus, we are drawn closer to one another. And I know that's like crazy optimism, and that's not usually my intent, but it's, it's, just, it's the only thing I can believe. It's the only way that I see this path forward of us finding unity together is that we are drawn closer and closer to Jesus. And as we're drawn closer to that well, we learn to love each other. But how does that work for us together? Well, I want to submit that we are not a melting pot. We are a fruit salad. Which means that someone is sitting next to you that's bananas That joke was right. <laughs> a pair of puns. Some of y'all get the third one later. All right. Uh, so you know what a melting pot is, right? You've been to that, that cheese fondue place. You throw all the cheese in, it melts out. Uh, a melting pot asks you to give up your individuality for the sake of the whole. But a fruit salad does something fundamentally different. A fruit salad allows each part to flourish in the whole. Each taste, each gift, each expression is unique and valuable. And the only way that this works is love. Anne Lamont wrote, love is gentle, if sometimes amused, warmth, for annoying and deeply disappointing people, especially ourselves. Love is someone you can draw near when you cry. Love plops in front of the TV with a bowl of popcorn in you. Love plops, but love also flies. Love reveals the beauty of sketchy people like us to ourselves. Love holds up the sacred mirror. So the answer seems trite. It's so simplistic and underwhelming in a complex world. But it really is love. Just love. 
being open and vulnerable to courageous and spirit-filled love that transforms us all. Sometimes the simplest answer, there's no way that could possibly work, we're just gonna waste our time, is the very action of God to transform the human heart. And so this week, try love. Try allowing God to umpire your heart. Try to hear the voice of someone that's been pushed to the edge and invite them into the middle. Because I believe with all my heart, this is what God calls us to do. So this week, may you have courage. May you have the courage to love. Be filled with God's spirit and go in peace.